My name is Kent, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to be able to open up to you the book of Acts today, Acts, starting with Acts 4, the end, and moving into Acts chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to take that out and read along with me. If not, feel free to open up your phone or your iPad or whatever you read your Bible on and follow along. We're going to start with Acts chapter 4, verse 23. If you were here last week, you know this is just a little bit of an overlap. We're following kind of, this is the third week of kind of following what happened with um, Peter and John when they healed this guy in the temple. Remember the lame guy? And they healed him and then uh, that was amazing, got everybody's attention, but not everybody liked it. So last week we heard about them being arrested and questioned about why this happened and what they were doing. And uh, we're going to continue that story today, starting with verse 23. Acts 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, and they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it in the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias... How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have let lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, 
Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. When I talk to young couples who are planning to get married, one of the things I ask them about is to tell me about their love for each other. And I usually get some kind of idealized, abstract, romantic drivel. (laughs) That's how I would describe it. They say things like, the first one will say something like, I I love you to the moon. (laughs) And the next one will say, I love you to the moon and back. They say things like, your, your love is like footprints on my heart, things like that. And I just kind of shake my head. I, I'm waiting for someone to give me a more practical answer, like, I love you more than brownies or something like that. I think that would be more fitting. So if I want to get the scoop about love, I actually talk to kids. I ask them what they think about love. And these are some actual responses from some actual kids about love. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) Love is when my daddy makes coffee for my mommy and then he takes a sip before giving it to her to make sure that it tastes okay. Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and then he wears it every day. Love makes you smile when you're tired. Love is when grandmother got arthritis and couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore, so grandpa does it for her all the time, even when he got arthritis in his hands. So you see, these kids instinctively know that love is uh, demonstrated, that you can have kind of an abstract theoretical position on love, but that if you really want to know if someone loves you, you look at the way they show it, that there's some kind of a practical demonstration of that. And um, this matches with Scripture, actually. When Scripture talks about love, it's usually in pretty concrete, specific demonstrations. Um, And there's a great famous chapter on love, one that we often read at weddings, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and every one of these expressions in that chapter is a really practical kind of expression. And we've got a little video we're going to show that um, kind of tried to capture some of these practical expressions of love according to 1 Corinthians 13, so go ahead and watch this. Maddie, who's your best friend? No, 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 get him off, no, no, 
of you guys are in big, big trouble. Yeah. Big trouble. <laughs> big trouble. Is that so? What is that? It's a good I don't think he did. Number two. Denver, you won't look at me. Did you? What? Okay, it's called the trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. Okay, so if I want you to get love, I got to show you puppies and kitties and little kids, right? I actually want you to turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you to share some idea that you have about practical love. What does it mean to demonstrate love? And if there's someone sitting by themselves, maybe slide together and encourage them to be part of your conversation. Uh, practical demonstrations of love. How do you see that work out in your life? <clears throat> Okay, this is actually how the Bible talks about love, and um, I'm going to pull this from another place in Scripture, Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated His love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very practical expression of demonstration of love. And this is why I like the book of Acts, because when you read through the book of Acts, we're discovering that it's really a learning lab about love. And it's always very practical. It's like demonstrating what it means for these people to live in the love of God and to love their neighbors in very practical ways, chapter after chapter of real vivid examples of the way that we love our neighbor. And I'm going to look at at least three expressions today of kind of practical expressions as it comes from this section of Scripture we just read. And the first one is bold love. Bold. Peter and John were arrested because they told people about the resurrection. The message bothered some people. So they hauled them in, they held them overnight, and then the next morning they brought them in for questioning. And they said, tell us, by what name and by what power did you do this healing and are you spreading this message? They wanted to know, you know, what is this? And so Peter takes this invitation as the perfect moment to say the same thing that he got in trouble for saying in the first place. This is what he says to them. I'm a little bit earlier in the chapter. He turns to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
Verse 9, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and everyone else, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that is the reason this man stands before you healed. He doesn't back down one bit. Incredible boldness. Jesus is the power and the authority at work here, and there's no doubt about it. And they kind of wrap up this little section by saying, Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. So rather than back down when questioned by these authorities, they actually ratchet it up. He says the same message again with great vigor and power, and he says, By the way, this is the only way. Salvation comes in no other name. I think it's a gutsy move by Peter and John in the face of the kind of persecution that they're getting to just keep saying it over and over again. And here's the reaction after they say it. Jump down to verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note. These men have been with Jesus, they said. But since they could see the man who was healed standing there before them, they had nothing else to say. Hey, by what name and what power did you heal this man? By the name of Jesus Christ, who was dead and who was raised from the dead. We got nothing to say because your boldness and because the evidence is standing right here before us. Spending time with Jesus brings boldness. It gets played out in practical ways with bold love, with the disciples demonstrating it over and over again. This word for boldness, actually, in this passage comes up about... Uh, half a dozen times throughout the book of Acts. Boldness is always associated in the book of Acts, at least, with this idea of speaking uh, freely, of declaring, of not holding back, unreserved declaration, fearless confidence, honest openness. That's all part of this. So when they declare about Jesus Christ with, with cheerful courage, they come forward and they say, we just want you to know one thing. Jesus, who was dead, is alive again. And they say it to everyone who will listen. And right after this comes more threats. They're told, stop it. Don't speak this to anybody else. And then they go off and they pray, Lord, give us more boldness. It just keeps coming up over and over again throughout this section. A bold love. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and you know what happened? They spoke the word of God boldly. More boldness. I find it interesting that every time they speak with cheerful confidence and boldness, the content of the speech is always the same throughout the whole book of Acts. There's the same core message. And it's interesting because they don't come to these people and start to talk to them about, hey, listen, you, you know, we want to tell you like uh, some tips for living or some advice or give you some wisdom. We don't want to like tell you how to like get along with the Romans or how to reach your neighbors. They don't talk about any of that. They don't talk about morality or politics. They don't focus on changing the behavior of those who are listening. They don't offer advice for better living or tips for improving their marriages or like how to be a better parent. They don't give anything like that. They always talk about Jesus. That's what they talk about. It comes out like this. And they're always kind of bold up front because they say, hey, listen, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth, but the man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know, that this man was handed over to you by godless by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's their message. And they keep giving it boldly over and over and over again. Bold love points people to Jesus. Bold love says, I want to tell you some more about Jesus. Bold love stays focused. And then pointing people to Jesus leads to a second kind of love in this passage, which is generous love. They've, they've not told the people one thing about what they should do about this. They just keep saying, Jesus, who was dead, is now raised. And the response of the people to this good news, this grace of God, their response is gratitude and generosity. They just can't help but give. All the believers, we are told, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerful at work with them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or homes sold them, brought the money from the sale, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This is in direct response to their message, their bold proclamation. Jesus is risen, and the people go, well, I got a, some stuff. Let me sell it. I'll give you some money, and you can take care of those people who don't have anything. It's just a natural response to be generous after you've heard this good news. Does this sound too good to be true? That's my reaction when I read this part of Acts. Like, are you kidding me? They preached Christ risen, and the people got out their checkbooks. Preach Christ risen and they sold their property. Preach Christ risen and they gave their money to the poor. They took care of the needy. Were the members of this first Christian community really that unified? Were they really that one of heart and mind that they would work on this project together? Did they really share absolutely everything that they had to give it away to those who need it? It seems too good to be true. The truth is, Grace impacts that much. God, I'm so grateful. I got to do something. I have to give away something. I have to be generous. I have to take care of those who are needy. Truth is, this early community of Christians was pretty radical, and they were very generous, and they responded in pretty amazing ways. The truth is, even in the book of Acts, they're not completely unified. Truth is, from the earliest days of the Christian church forward, there is some level of disagreement and not everybody was generous. Truth is, they were people. So some of the people responded with great generosity, some of them not so much. Acts is kind of remarkable for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is this kind of honesty about who these people were. It tells us the good and the bad. They just lay it out there for us. And so we find out in the next chapter that not everybody got with the program. 
Not everybody was completely generous. And we actually find in the chapters to follow that sometimes there was great disagreement that the disciples, the apostles themselves sharply disagreed with one another so that they had to call in these special meetings and say, hey, let's get everybody in the room together and let's all hash it out because we know that we're not all in full agreement here. And they would talk it out. And we actually know from reading a little farther on that these apostles, some of them disagreed with each other so sharply, at some point they go, you know what, I can't really work with you anymore. You go do your thing, and I'll go do my thing. We'll continue to bring God's kingdom, but we're going to do it separately because I just don't agree with you. That's part of this story also. And not just the book of Acts. If we read Paul's letters to the churches, we see that Paul is often holding people to account. In fact, part of the reasons he writes the letters in the first place is because he has to mediate among believers in their disagreements. He has to help them clarify their positions and their understandings and their faith. He has to overcome false ideas and practices. He has to help them sort it out because they're not getting along. So this is definitely part of the story. It's not all peace and harmony, but it's amazing to me that bold proclamation about the risen Jesus results in high levels of unity and generosity. That there's as much of it as we read about in these chapters. Jesus is preached in a very diverse group of people, come together for a common cause, and they accomplish so much good, it's unbelievable. In this situation, the good that they accomplish is described as nobody had any need among them. They took care of everybody. That's a pretty amazing level of response and a pretty amazing level of generosity. Jesus is preached and they give. This is practical, isn't it? I don't know of a love that is much more practical than this. I have something you need, so I take what I have and I give it to you. That's practical. That's generosity. That's the way this community responded to God's grace. Generous love. Almost as practical as painting grandma's toenails. And the thing that amazes me about this love and this unity that's described here is not that it's sometimes disrupted by trouble or disunity or tight-fistedness, but that it has maintained so well for so many generations. Because if we look at the church today and you read the research that's out there about the church today, who are the most generous people in our world today? People of faith. The most generous, by far. So this has continued on to today. And despite all the challenges and all the disagreements and all the debates and all the fractures and schisms and all the splits in churches, that there is a remarkable unity among Christians. There is. And the unity is the strongest in one area when we talk about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. But the third day he rose again from the dead and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We agree about that. There's unity around that. And that truth results in generous love, generous people. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was much grace on them all. Isn't that a beautiful statement? 
Grace that led to gratitude, which led to rich generosity, which led to deep unity. This is the church we read about in Acts 4, all created by the resurrection. So we read about this bold love, we read about this generous love, and now we come to chapter 5 and we read about what I'm going to call honest love. A guy named Barnabas responds to the good news of a risen Jesus by selling his property and giving it away, bringing the money so they can feed the hungry and take care of the needy. And it was fitting for a guy like this to do this because his nickname was Barnabas, which means encourager. That's the, that's the encouraging thing you would expect, right? Barnabas the encourager saw somebody in need, so he says, I'm selling my property and I'm going to take care of them. And this got other people in the community to notice And so somebody else who was watching this comes up with an idea, actually, a scheme. Who knows why they came up with this scheme? Let's sell the property and say we give it all away, but we'll keep back some of it for ourselves. I don't know why they would come up with a scheme other than the honest truth is this, that we are actually all capable of really bad behavior sometimes, aren't we? I could have come up with a scheme like this. So they lie about what they did. They're generous. These are generous people because they didn't have to give anything. No, there was no requirement from the apostles saying, hey, listen, you all, go sell your stuff and give it away. Nobody said that. They just kept saying, Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. And then... They saw people selling their property, so they said, well, we'll do this. We'll give part of it, but we'll tell them it's the whole thing. They distort the truth to make themselves look better than they really are. Who hasn't done that sometime? Distort the truth to make me look better. Sometimes I think it's because we lose sight of what was earlier in this passage when they said, you know what, this Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised from the dead. All of this was done at the hands of wicked men, but do you remember what it said? It was done exactly according to the plan that God had laid out. And we think, well, you know what? I don't know if I can trust God's plan exactly. Maybe I need to bail him out on this. I'm going to help him out a little bit. So maybe God can't do it with half my money. He needs to think it's all of my money I'm going to give to him. Maybe I'm going to exaggerate my generous love. I'll look a little bit better. Thank goodness we don't perpetuate that kind of fraud on that day because if we had, we might be the ones who dropped dead at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Survivor, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and he brought the rest of it and he put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it all belong to you when it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal to do with it as you wish? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've just not only lied to human beings, but you've also lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all those who heard what happened. Don't you think? I think sometimes... Preachers dream, I know this preacher dreams of having some power over his people. Can you imagine that power? Come meet with the preacher and lie to him and then you end up dead. 
we had to have like a little group of guys waiting out in the lobby every time someone met with one of the pastors, just in case they had to carry out, carry him out. Great fear seized the whole community. And then about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price? I almost think Peter's trying to help her out, maybe. Is this really the price you got for that land? And she says, yes, that's the price, and... He says to her, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who have buried your husband, they're at the door and they're ready to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church about these events. Acts 5 strikes me as kind of a reality check. Before you people go off and think you have the power to actually do something to save the world. Remember this, you can't actually save yourself. And one of the remarkable things about this whole passage and really the whole book of Acts is this. If I was going to write a story to try to convince you to join my movement to try to tell you what a great thing it was and what a difference it could make and how much impact we could have on the world, I don't think I would include this story. Would you? In fact, oftentimes throughout the book of Acts, you expect to hear this uh, triumphant march of the gospel moving through the city, from city to city, and you see this, but then there's constantly these failures and these shortcomings and these people who screw up. This this story is so rich with the failures. You wonder, why would they write this if they're trying to convince you that this is such a great idea? You know what it convinces me of? They're telling me the truth. They're honest about who they are. They're honest about the reality that we're all people And that means we're all capable of great misbehavior. And that is exactly why we need to keep telling you about Jesus who came and lived and died and was buried and was raised again from the dead. And it's not just for them out there and their criminal behavior, but it's for us in here and our desire to defraud, to lie to the Holy Spirit, to lie to God, to lie to ourselves, to lie to the person sitting next to you and say, I'm better than I really am. And when that sneaks in, then the one thing you need to hear is this. Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again from the dead for you. I think Acts 5 is a reality check in one of the most practical ways possible. It says, I want to honest love. I'm going to name things the way they are. I'm going to speak the truth in love. So we celebrate a bold love, proclaiming Jesus Christ risen. And this results in a response of gratitude and generosity and unity among the people. Unbelievable. And it also allows us to be honest and say, well, without Jesus, we're all lost, every one of us. We'd all be laying dead at the apostles' feet. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to look at your little um, sermon sheet with the eight squares on it. 
And these are sheets we've been working on now for a couple months, thinking about who our neighbors are and naming them. And some of you can right now, you're, you're getting really good at this, you can fill all eight names of the people who live closest to you, whether it's Cedar Rapids or Adkins or wherever you're at, you, your eight closest neighbors, and you're thinking about ways to love them. And now I want you to look at those names on your list and think about what would it mean to love them boldly? And what would it mean to love them with generosity? And what would it mean to love them honestly? Bold love, generous love, and honest love. What would it look like for these eight people on your, in your neighborhood, your closest neighbors? I want you to just take a few moments and I want you to jot down any thoughts that come to mind about that. Hopefully you'll continue to reflect on that as you go home this afternoon and start to see your neighbors, maybe walk through the neighborhood and love them somehow. Do we have people here who are fans of the Marvel Avengers series? Marvel Avengers movies? Okay. Some of you know the setup for this movie is um, the S.H.I.E.L.D. director, Nick Fury, who's played by Samuel L. Jackson. There's a whole series of movies for you who aren't into this. Don't get started. (laughs) But when they set up these Avengers... The goal is to bring together a group of remarkable people and see if they would become something more. So he brings back these people, their superpowers, and then they try to become something more than they are. And that's a pretty decent description, actually, of all human communities. We bring a bunch of people together, diverse people, and see if they can accomplish something more together than they could alone. Um, I'm not sure if it's exactly the right description for, for Christian community, though, because it seems to me that Christian community is bringing together anybody, not just remarkable people, anybody can come to Christian community and can come together and can accomplish more together in Jesus than they would ever accomplish on their own. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this word today, for the truth of your word and for your Holy Spirit who is here in this room to apply it to our hearts, and we pray that you'll help us to continue to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen.